This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, where voting is open now for our annual Reader's Choice categories in the Best in Beer competition. Vote online now, beerandbrewing.com slash best-2019. That's beerandbrewing.com slash best-2019. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast for our special episode 100 of the podcast. It's kind of crazy that we've gotten this far in the history of this. We uh, we started this a few years ago not knowing where we'd go, and here we are. And so I thought for this special occasion, we would invite our good old friend, Neil Fisher of Wealthworks, uh, back for a, a few minutes here. Welcome to the podcast, Neil. Thanks for having me again, Jamie. We shot back out to Greeley. Uh, um, later on in the podcast, we're going to cut into the podcast takeover that Neil and Corey King of Side Project uh, recorded back in June while we were out at the Firestone Walk. Walker Invitational. It's a fantastic conversation, and it's a conversation that's only been available up to this point to our subscribers on the special subscriber version of the podcast. Speaking of Craft Beer and Brewing subscriptions, that's the way you can support what we do. So go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, become a subscriber to the magazine, and uh, you know you can read occasional articles that Neil writes for us, although it's been a little while now. Yeah, we, I think uh, we've got a couple stout articles uh, maybe a year ago but yeah maybe it's time to get another one of the books maybe but maybe it's another time. there's some good content out there okay. if you're looking for hazy ipa or stouts or uh, or even the what number 19 podcast go number 19 that, podcast yeah go give that a listen to episode so, 19 episode 19 just neil fisher but um, no you can hear all about how neil uh, <laughs> brews juicy bits and uh, conceived of that it's been fun to see how many people have connected with just that recipe since you guys published it what are we so more than two years now, I think. So, um, but it's been fun just to get feedback from brewers, home brewers, people that don't have any interest in brewing it, but just excited to see a recipe out there. So, um, thanks for letting me contribute that. It's pretty cool. So go to uh, beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, support what we do. Like I said, I've said before, it's kind of like a Patreon, but we just send you a magazine every two months. So, <laughs> um, cool benefits in addition to getting to listen to this podcast and, uh, and supporting our ability to go out and have great conversations with great brewers. A um, couple more things before we cut into a conversation. Our best in beer issue is coming up soon. We're working on it right now. Uh, November 1st will be the best in beer podcast which uh, it's kind of crazy, but uh, if we look back at the history of this podcast, last year's Best in Beer episode, which was uh, episode 54 of Best in Beer 2018, is our second most downloaded episode in wow. the history of the podcast. Uh, I don't know why, I don't know how anyone could listen to you know two editors talk about uh, the Best in Beer for an entire episode, but hey, I appreciate that. Thank you all. Um, that episode's gonna drop on November 1st. The digital issue for the Best in Beer issue drops on November 1st goes live out there in the app um, and so that's gonna yeah we're working towards that now uh, we are tasting beers and going through our review process if you're a professional brewer out there and you haven't yet thrown your hat in the ring uh, drop me an email jbogner at beerandbrewing.com j-b-o-g-n-e-r at beerandbrewing.com and and is spelled out a-n-d um, and I'll put you in touch with how you can uh, ship some beer out for us to consider for that uh, best in beer episode um, and for the, uh, the best in beer issue and our cool little trophies for the top 40 or so in our reader's choice, our editor's picks, and other kinds of categories. So it's a fun highlight for the year where we get to talk about all that's great in the world of beer. Super excited for that one. You guys have won a Best in Beer before, Neil? We have, and I, I, I think it was before the cool trophy, so I'm going to have to ask for a print of that trophy one day. But no, 
we think we've had, I think it was Extra Extra or was it? I think uh, it was Extra Extra, yeah, extra which extra. was the top reviewed uh, IPA uh, in our IPA issue that year. Yeah, so, which is crazy. And that's kind of how we go with our best in beer. Absolutely. You know, we, uh, we try to taste these beers throughout the year and the top scores in our issues around any of those subjects are automatically you know, like pushed forward and in that consideration for beers of the year. And that's certainly how it made it. But our blind reviewers tasted it and it was the, the standout for them and there it went. Yeah, we're, we're hoping to compete again this year, maybe. Well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, you know, it, a lot of it's uh, that that portion of it is blind and up to the judges. There have been some very cool beers that we've tasted this That's year. Awesome. Can't wait to, to celebrate that. Best of luck to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And since this is the 100th episode, I thought we'd talk a little bit about uh, what you guys out there listening to the podcast are really enjoying about this. Um, and because Neil's a competitive guy and loves talking about uh, how well his episodes have performed. And did you tell him it was episode 19? Right? Episode 19, if you want to go back and listen. <laughs> Small plug for previous episodes. Th- it's still in the top 10 of, all, of our all-time episodes. But, uh, but it's been interesting and curious to see what uh, brewers like to listen to the most. And currently, right now, our number five episode of all time for the podcast was episode 85 with Vinny Chalurzo, as Vinny talks about brewing IPAs. Great, great episode. Absolutely. One of my favorites. Episode four. What's number four? Trillium. Trillium. Yeah, with J.C. Ah, Tetrill. Yeah. All right. Um, and that one is, I mean, they are neck and neck, super close. And then uh, the, the third most downloaded episode, uh, and this is all time since the start of the epi- uh, start of the podcast, was episode seventy-one with Sam Richardson of, of Other Half. Other Half. Oh, yeah. okay. you guys so, have brewed with them before. Yeah, good friends with both those guys. Have a ton of respect for them, and I'm hopeful that one day I can pass their uh, subscriberships on their episodes, though. So well, you got some tough. work to do. Maybe, maybe, to maybe do. this episode if you will do to it. Episode I'll, nineteen. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe this episode will do it. You never know. <laughs> yeah. You never know. Those are great podcasts. Uh, second most episode, uh, downloaded episode, like I talked about before, is episode 54, our Best in Beer 2018 episode. Uh, over 31,000 people wow. have downloaded and listened to that episode, which is just mind-blowing. Yeah. Episode number one is, of course, the very first episode that we ever released. Not really surprising. People start listening to the podcast. They go back to episode one. So Garrett Oliver is still in that number one spot. Holding the one spot. But over 36,000 people have wow. downloaded and listened to that episode. So, hey, uh, thank you all out there listening for supporting what we do, for listening and enjoying and uh, and continuing to come back and listen to these episodes. It's fun to be able to make them for you. It's fun to be able to have these conversations. It's, and it's fun to be able to hopefully contribute something to the world of brewing beer by sharing knowledge from great brewers out there. I can speak for listeners because I, I love the podcast uh, just to, to find out the, the latest and, and hear from industry uh, peers. But it's amazing just the resources that, you know, you guys have connections with and um, just the wealth of knowledge that people are willing to share. Um, it's unlike any other podcast I've found. So um, it's great to see, you know, a, a lot of technical stuff, which is great, but also just culturally and, and just kind of state of our industry and just getting to, getting to know the breweries and, and the stories behind them. So um, I, I thank Craft Beer and Brewing for letting me be a part of it, but also for putting out such great content. So um, if you're a fan of these podcasts, continue to subscribe. Uh, tell me a little bit about this episode that we're about to cut into, this conversation that you had with Corey uh, King at Firestone Walker on Saturday morning before the festival started. Both of you guys woke up bright and early and met me, uh, uh, despite being maybe maybe a touch hungover from the night before, and uh, and sat down, took the podcast over, had a fantastic conversation about brewing. Yeah, I, I think it was a lot of fun because we both have, you know, we have similar passions, and especially with barrels. I think that's something we're both very passionate about and spent a lot of time understanding and learning more about it. Um, so it was fun to just kind of really 
ask each other questions. I mean, we were, it wasn't like we were interviewing each other, but we were really having a pretty candid and honest conversation about different methods and techniques and uh, a lot of stouts and a lot of um, kind of barrel discussions about other stuff as well. And well, before we jump into that conversation, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. G&D is committed to cold, whether you operate a brew pub or large-scale production brewery. Contact G&D Chillers today at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention this podcast and receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new G&D Chiller. Also, Tavor makes it possible to access and discover the highest-rated craft beers from all over the world through the free mobile app. Twice a day, you get access to a new limited beer from an independent craft brewer. Imagine sipping a vanilla ice cream Stout from Wild Leap Brewing in Georgia or Juicy Bits IPA from Weldworks in Colorado. Join the independent beer community today and get $10 in beer money with code BREWING. Juicy Bits, Neil. Juicy Bits, yeah, to war. <laughs> We've got a couple shipments of Juicy Bits out and we hear from people all the time like, when are you guys getting out there? We're trying our best to get more out, but Tavor's been a great partner. So you got to awesome make more beer, it. I guess. I guess got to get more Juicy Bits out to the people. Also, Hopsteiner is a vertically integrated global hops supplier dedicated to delivering the finest hops and hops products available. For six generations, Hopsteiner has partnered with breweries of all sizes, offering unique hops varieties and innovative hops products to enhance flavor, aroma, consistency, and flexibility for brewing and beyond. Learn more at hopsteiner.com. And balancing barley and hops is your expertise, but for Clarion Lubricants, food-grade lubricants is theirs. The team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you're the expert. And when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, they're the experts. Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial 1-855-MY-CLARION. That's 855-692-5274 or visit clarionlubricants.com. Clarion Lubricants, the expert that experts trust. Neil, let's jump into this conversation between you and Corey as you all take over the podcast for this special episode 100. Sounds great, let's give it a listen. Now let's talk about barrel-aged doubts. Let's jump right in. Okay. So I think what I've been most impressed with uh, the way you guys approach, uh, especially especially barrel aged stouts, you have multiple recipes, um, different threads that you you know use for blending. Um, how do you guys how do you guys approach that as far as because you you obviously use different barrels and you but you have different malt bases for these different recipes. How are you guys incorporating those kind of you know what's the approach to okay we want a weeded um, stout or a you know yeah um, I you know I think when you know, there's more than one ways to make an imperial stout, and part of the nature of our brewery is experimentation and writing new recipes. That's the most fun for me, writing new recipes. So, we, you know, we we write a bunch of different stout recipes to play with them in unique barrels. When when I first got into making barrel aged stout, it was one recipe in one type of barrel at the previous brewery I worked at, and from that, you we would still pick out barrels that were exceptional, barrels that were behind, um, and it kind of just like a eureka moment like well you know what what if we started actually doing you know sw- slight tweaks slight different variations of these recipes and then doing different barrels and then trying to match the barrel to the recipe um from from the get-go um we there's a couple recipes that we know the barrels they work in the best but even then you know my wanting to always tweak on things 
we're always just getting different barrels in and trying new things and and the more pieces we have the better beer i think we can make in the end for blending purposes and it, and and that's how we've developed all of our stouts that's why we actually say they're blends if you will um because it's a blend of separate recipes it's not, we don't sit down and you can't walk through a warehouse and find beer barrel time barrels you know or derivation barrels they have different names on them just for the names of the recipes so we can just make the best blend and beer possible later if that makes sense yeah so, that's I, I, it's a really ins- like inspired approach to it. We've always kind of gone. We started off the opposite, where we had that same recipe as Medianoche, and it was continued to evolve as age and all the other yeah. things that we we changed. But now we've kind of taken more of an approach where okay, let's let's pair the like you said, the malt <clears throat> bill in particular can be complementary to the barrel. So if we're doing a, if we know we're going into rye barrels, we've already got a good lead on yeah ones that can be freshly sourced. Let's in- incorporate. We we typically use rye, a lot of chocolate rye, but Let's incorporate some caramel rye or some other, you know, some rye malts. Same with weeded bourbons. Um, yes, 100%. Um, I, I haven't had a lot of weeded stouts. You guys, I know, use some weeded stouts in some of your blends, too. And I think that's a totally different mouthfeel and, and, and really texture than than what you see, like, with an oat, you know, a big oatmeal stout. Yeah, for, for most of our stouts, they all have a really heavy dose of oats. And uh, what we do for our weeded stouts, pretty much just cut the oats out. Well, no, don't cut it out. There's still a couple bags. I just can't get away from oats. I think oats are in every recipe we write all the time. I don't yeah. know why. Um, one of my favorite malts for some reason. But um, we, we just really lower the oat percentage and then just uh, take that in with wheat, if you will, malted wheat on that. Um, and we're talking usually about like a 20% malted wheat beer on our weeded imperial stout. Um, um, and then that digs into some of the base malt. And fortunately, wheat, you know, we get actually more points out of wheat, you know, sugar points. Um, so it tends to be a really efficient uh, brew for us. It actually is not too bad. Um, with our oversized mash ton, we don't have a problem with it. So um, uh, I have a question for you, actually, I guess, as uh-huh. well. So have you, as you said, you started with like a recipe that's kind of evolved. But have you ever taken maybe that recipe and brewed it just different ways i.e. like let's have the same recipe but we decide on this batch we're going to mash way different temperature or on this batch we're actually going to go three gravity points lower to start or, or three gravity points higher you know to maybe to maybe just see what that recipe does in different areas yeah it's it, it's kind of happened by circumstance more than anything because you know with with an overnight boil you know the times can range from 32 to, to 38 or 40 hours and so we'll inevitably have a batch, you know, our most recent batch we knocked out uh, right at 40 Play-Doh, but the batch prior to that was closer to 36, 37. And so it's the same recipe, same process, same mash temps, just ends up being a different boil time. Um, and so we've actually seen now that those barrels do age very differently, mm-hmm. even though they are the same, you know, three, gra- three Play-Doh difference. Um, has made a, you know an impact on what we can use that for blending. Um, you know some of those bigger starting gravities, we couldn't do them as a single batch. They're just too big. Whereas some of the ones that attenuate further, the same same problem. They're not big enough. And so having more of those threads to be able to, to blend has been great. But now we're talking about okay, let's let's not make drastic. Let's not start over from from scratch with a brand new recipe. But let's take that existing recipe because it's been you know we've improved upon it, knowing that now our target's 18 months on mm-hmm. average. So we've made those kind of recipe adjustments to go that distance. Uh, but what, what happens with a higher mash temp? You know, attenuations are, are going to be where they're at. But what, what kind of, you know, overall impact on age and, and really mouthfeel, that's kind of, I think, always what we're, we're striving for is how can we just get that amazing mouthfeel without cloyingness? And that's, I think, the balance a lot of us are trying to strike. Yes. That's, I, I, think, uh, and that's, I think that's maybe one of the misconceptions even with what's going on right now is the fact that, you know, final gravity isn't all mouthfeel you know what i mean your final gravity if it's too high it can be straight cloying and there's just unfermented sugar in there because 
fermentation's the other you know key to this whole thing. Um, you know, being that we make a lot of barrel aged stouts, I'm sure you're the same way. People bring by some pretty hyped up barrel aged stouts for us to try, and it's always fun to get one and go, oh my gosh, this is so sweet. I'm going to take a gravity reading on it. I want to see what it is. And it's like, this beer's 19 Play-Doh. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, this isn't fermented out, you know? And 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 to some, that's mouthfeel. Um, and, and I think um, there are consumers coming around to that going, man, that's just sweet. You know, that's just unfermented sugar. Um, and so that's something that we strive for too is mouthfeel, but fully attenuated beer, but still, don't get me wrong, the final gravities are relatively high. Um, but we know that, you know, our yeast is done. You know, it is done all of the work it needs to do, and there's no cloyingness behind it. And, you know, throwing it in a barrel helps, too. You know, aging and blending all those, you know, the impactful, you know, the oak and the bourbon and the booze, you know, kind of pulls that back, too. But um, I think that's one of the misconceptions. So right now is people are just going out and making, you know, beers that finish at 18 Play-Doh and say, look, they're thick. Like, no, that's, yeah, but it's not firm. You know what I mean? Right. And, and, uh, and that's something that... I think that's what separates a lot of when I have a lot of the barrel aged outs uh, amongst the, the the ones that people bring by for sure. Yeah, and I, I think you're you're exactly right that I think the, we've looked at mouthfeel as yeah okay start really high gravity. I think that's what people assume when we talk about a forty plato starting gravity is like oh it's just to to leave around a lot of sugar, which is in, inevitably going to be you know part of that. But mouthfeel is such a bigger part than just you know what the the final gravity is. And like you said, you don't want to be cloying, and that's where I think like oats you know that's a we, we've gone 25 percent on, on yeah. stouts that we really want especially fresher stouts that we want just this amazing mouthfeel without that cloyingness and i think trying to think through more of like the impacts of the you know the grain bill like you said fermentations um i think mash temps all those things are are i think as big a factor to mouthfeel as final gravity and then how you strike that balance and that's that's kind of where our age comes into to play for us is you know the i think the thing that we've always noticed on our barrel aged stouts especially after packaging you know, after it's 17, 18 months in the barrel and then we package it, a year later, it's still pretty bright kind of barrel character. It's got, you know, really nice viscosity, but the mouthfeel is starting to diminish in, in certain ways. And that's that, it's always that, I think, the challenge for people that want to sell their barrel-aged beers and partic- mm-hmm. barrel-aged stouts is mouthfeel is probably, for me, the first thing I, I noticed that degrades. That's interesting. That's interesting. And so we've been trying to figure out how you how do you maintain that? How do you yeah. improve your mouthfeel over time? Because um, I think that's I don't know we, we've we've had this ongoing discussion of what does age impact in particular and yeah. there's that oxidation reactions that are happening sugar is different but mouthfeel for us is a, is a tough one. Um, you know that's uh, that's interesting point. I, I I haven't I haven't experienced that with ours like loss of mouthfeel with time um, and, and that's something that I'll actually you know want to watch like the last beer barrel time we did was some of the best mouthfeel I think of any beer we've done and so that's something I hope to. You know, I've saved enough of it to drink over the next 10 years and kind of actually, you know, I have to think, you know, we've only been making barrel-aged out really for like five years. So we, we still don't even have the the knowledge of maybe like a Goose Island, you know what I mean? That's has barrel-aged out in their, in their library that's, you know, more than a decade old. Um, so so I haven't I haven't quite experienced that with ours. But yeah, that's, I mean, mouthfeel is the first and foremost thing I think that we shoot for. We shoot for chocolate, you know. Sure. Um, I'm not a big, I don't like dark fruits in my stouts. It's, I, I don't like the European-esque, you know, hopping rates and, and you know, the, the fermentation profiles of those. So I go clean chocolate and bourbon. But yeah, mouthfeel with, you know, like you said, oats. I, I think we can almost probably put ours are all imperial oatmeal stouts. Yeah. Um, but another thing that we do um, that, that I was thinking of while you were talking was, so we have those recipes and we will play around with our starting gravities, you know, um, and then we'll 
inevitably have different final gravities, as you mentioned. And what we do in all of our barrels, all of our barrels have the final gravity written on them. And then what barrel, you know, because we, we turn them, we face them backwards, and then we write what barrel was on on the front and final gravity. So we can later even test the theories of is it a barrel that's adding mouthfeel? You know, we've definitely discovered that it's not all final gravity. You know, we, we have beers that have a 15 Plato final gravity that have less of a mouthfeel than one that actually finishes at 12. Um, you know, it's, it's and, and those are talking fully attenuated beers, at least, you know, and, and lack of sugar. So um, it, it's something that we're still playing with. And it's, it's one of the reasons we have so many pieces. So when we do like a beer barrel time, we're really blending for flavor components and mouthfeel. And, and then after we blend, we'll actually go back and take a gravity of the blend and see where we are as opposed to using that gravity as blending. But it's, it's definitely educational for us to see that, look, just because the beer finished at 12 doesn't have anything to do um, with the mouthfeel in the long run, depending on the recipe, the barrel, the age in the, in the barrel. Um, so I, I, that's something that, you know, maybe other brewers will take at heart. Like, it doesn't have to be 17 Play-Doh finisher, buddy. Like, you can, you can drop that down and still get the mouthfeel with other things, a water profile. Um, we're very fortunate. We have amazing stout water in St. Louis. Um, um, it's very, very good and easy to work with. But, uh, but little things like that, I think that, that because the beers are so intense and over the top that almost other brewing practices get thrown to the wind sometimes you know people are just trying to jam it down its throat like you know overload the mash tun you know boil it forever but like let's think about the things as a brewers too you know like our water profile and increasing efficiencies or maybe in our, our malt, malt structure um and in, in, in our final product as far as fermentation profiles um you know what yeast we're using and making sure it's fully attenuated and, and sell you know pitching rates hopefully it's properly pitched you know and then aging after that and still minimizing o2 contact you know you know all those little things but some people i think it's just such a massive just huge beer and that's the the world we live in right now in craft beer is just big and bold and bad that like well there's still nuances to these beers that we're trying to achieve um you know we're, we're still trying to execute these as, as well as we execute our four percent grisette you know um and and i think that in the long run will, will help me you know manage and maintain kind of which direction we're trying to go i think absolutely and i think that's i think touching on the finesse of like you know it doesn't sound like a style that is really you know caters itself to finesse and kind of you know maybe maybe stepping back a little bit and saying yeah what what if we do attenuate more and still maintain mouthfeel and that's for us we've even noticed changes in the same batch same gravities but you know where they're stored and yeah. um you know similar to bourbon yeah. it's that same, you know, we see those those lower uh, barrels, like on the bottom racks, a little bit cooler, a little bit less fluctuation, a little less extraction, to be honest. So the ABVs end up being a little bit lower because um, we're not evaporating as much mm-hmm. um, and maybe a little bit less barrel character. But the mouthfeel is always, always better than the ones on the very top, you know, on the fourth or fifth the, uh, top of the rack. Mm-hmm. And that's where we've tried to figure out, okay, what if we just did a top rack blend of all, you know, all different batches, but they're all the top rack of our our barrel room so um those i think those kinds of like getting to know your barrels and getting to know how your stout ages in those barrels is something we've really spent a lot of time on um if you, i got a question on on barrels in particular for you so um and you know probably like us you guys work with a variety of, of brokers and, and distillers and um, trying to source you know a mix of complex and and, and varied barrels um if you had to pick one barrel to use for the rest of your life i was all you could use what would that, that barrel be <laughs> oh man um 
I could probably narrow it down to two, but one one would be I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a really good relationship with um, a friend of mine, Drew, master distiller at Will at, at KBD, and so it would definitely be his bourbon barrels. Um, it's it's great now too that some of the bourbon barrels we're getting from him is his juice stuff that they've been making there now. Um, I think they're on like seven year old stuff now. Um, anything older than that was bought in because you know they're relatively just kind of getting ramped back up and going. But um, I love Willet. Um, it it may be more of um, necessarily like a relationship base. You know, with I I can go down and hand select. You know, I can go down and talk to him and he could be like, man, the whiskey from this batch and you can pull the lot numbers and we get the barrels that match that lot or like you know awesome and that's that little extra touch that we can p- apply you know we're not an ipa brewery so i don't fly out to yakima and rub hops but i can drive to kentucky and pick barrels you know and and, and when, when when i talk to people about that they're like oh that kind of does make sense you know like this is what we do we just we do the same thing you're doing for flying out to get hops I'm, i just go to kentucky you know and i talk to these guys so it'd be willet bourbon for sure um and you know we've made tweaks to recipes to actually batch the barrels as opposed you know because because i just love working with them and, and have a good relationship with them and and some of our best beers have come out of those barrels now and that might be just from the extra little attention that we're putting in you know um i'm not a big even with our wine barrels i really don't like using brokers very often because they're trying to sell me something um you know and it's like man if anytime you're trying to sell me something i like to be the guy saying no i want to buy something you know i want i want to pick so um uh, the the brokers we we really don't go through very many brokers um i have one that i trust out in kentucky but that's because i've toured their place and you know handpicked stuff but it'd be will at bourbon first and foremost and then then it would be well or 12 year <laughs> well or 12 barrels are awesome you, you guys can have around yeah, yeah i got it lucky i got some recently i've been <laughs> oh. bugging i have been bugging my one broker that we do mess with um uh, for more than like it was about two years, and uh, remember that. Well, that's the our collabs in that. Oh, that's yeah. right. We brewed a beer specifically. Neil and I brewed a beer specifically for rye barrels. And when I called to order the rye barrels, because I wasn't going to drive down to Kentucky for these, because I knew exactly what I wanted. They were like, "Hey, by the way, we finally got those Weller Twelve barrels. Oh, that take those. I'll take." Them. And I was like, "How many do you have?" And I just bought all of them, so nobody else can have any. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even have beer to put in all of them. I just got them. So like, and then I started filling them as fast as I could. So it's, yeah, you don't ever pass up on Weller Twelve barrels. But um, those barrels are awesome. Um, we have a weeded Imperial Stout recipe that our original derivation blend number two um, is a single recipe, if you will. It was a blend of two barrels, but it was a single recipe beer. Um, weeded Imperial Stout, and, and we matched that with a weeded bourbon barrel. And it sounds silly, but at the same time, it turned out perfect. You know, one of those one of those matches. So for you, um, I know unfortunately you're not as close to Kentucky. You can't just hop in the car and drive down drive. back. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but but do you have a, fra- a favorite uh, distillery or even brand that you like to work with? I know we're really not allowed to talk about brands sometimes. You know, some of the distilleries don't like us telling them. You know, telling yeah. people. But you know, uh, there's there's a couple in Colorado that are great and and their blends. So that you know the barrels have different origins, which is actually kind of nice for us. Because um, they, you know, they'll source and then they'll also do their own distillate, and so we get a good kind of variety from those. Um, you know, the, the Willet barrels actually that we got after after we brewed together and then um, able to get in touch with them, they're aging really well. They're probably some of the best, you know, within six eight months that we've had of anything we've done. I think consistently my my favorite have been um, Heaven Hills, uh, mm-hmm. Pikesville, or um, Rittenhouse Rye. Mm-hmm. Um, just that. Uh, four-year and, and six-year rye um, we we typically go you know go after some of the older seven to ten year barrels that uh, you know people are mostly blending whether it's MGP or you know some other stuff but um, those are just we, we like the character we get out of them they're getting harder and harder to find and the prices are going up um, but the four-year you know Rittenhouse uh, from from Heaven Hill uh, we've gotten a few different from different brokers and even some, some new sources lately but 
those have aged really, really nicely. And they and now we're starting to cater. Okay, you know, we're not going to go overboard with the rye because there's so much great kind of rye to those mm-hmm. barrels. But incorporating some kind of complementary malts for that specific batch, and then we can kind of have an ongoing rye, maybe noche. That's um, you know, it gives us blends too if we're not going to do a, a straight rye. But it's been really fun to, to do that and focus more on the rye character, and then incorporating some adjuncts that that play well with that. So I, you know, if I had one barrel, you know, not being close, Laws, we get, we do have some barrels from Laws down in Denver, and um, they're doing some really fun stuff, and and you know, some three and four years, some bottled and bond. Um, you know, they're they're definitely I think on the upward swing of now they've got more age and they've got some more. Um, you know, we've toured their place a bunch of times. They're awesome people, um, so they're probably our favorite in state um, from distillate produced in Colorado. Um, but but Rittenhouse or Pikesville are probably my favorite. That's cool. Right. We I, I used a lot of Rittenhouse at the last brewery I worked at, and that was all we used actually Rittenhouse rice. Anybody out there like wanting to get into rye barrels, Rittenhouse rye is a great one. They're so easy to work with. They're always fresh because they're younger too. Um, they're they're yeah. We use for rye. We use Rittenhouse and Willet exclusively um, for rye. We actually have a beer today here. It's a vanilla and rye, and uh, the rye blend was Willet and uh, Rittenhouse. I'll have to bring over some. But, uh, so I guess going back um, on that, even do you have preferred you know age of barrel? Um, you know, not even just varietal, but uh, but actual age for for your beers. Yeah, we you know I think we kind of kept moving the target. The target was always just twelve months. That just seemed to be closer to industry standard for um, for the stout in, in a barrel. And now that we've been getting a variety of ages, we're starting to see that okay, we can go eighteen months. We can go twenty months. Beyond that, in the same barrel, especially, we start getting in. A, I think extracting tannins that we don't love. Um, sometimes they're nice because they do add. Um, they added a different character to the mouthfeel, especially sometimes it's detracting, but sometimes there's a, there's, you know, a balance there from tannin. Um, but we found that like, you know, the older the barrel we get, it seems like the, the shorter, the longer we have to go to get some of that character, but we also start risking that, yeah, we, the, the, the seven to 10 year barrels have some fantastic spirits character, but they don't have a lot of the oak left. You know, the oak has already been extracted and it's already gone out in spirits. So you still get some of that left in the, you know, the devil's cut that's still in that, those staves. Um, but some of these fresher, you know, for, you know, I think we just filled some MGP we had sourced, you know, five, you know four or five year MGP high rye, I think was the, the mash bill for that one. And it's just amazing how much still, you know, oak, uh, vanillin is in there. Um, all those, you know, the, like coconut lactones and all these, really bright oak characteristics that sometimes the bourbon doesn't take all that away. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think for us has been kind of like what you mentioned at the beginning is, is just having more options to blend with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, we haven't produced anything that's gone less than 16 months in a while. And I think we're actually going to do that soon because we have some barrels that are maturing much faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and just based on the, the age of the barrel and also the, the gravity of the stout or, or, you know, but how long that stout is, you know, we, we have gotten, I think, better about just overall brewing practices. So mm-hmm. the, the beer is, is not needing as long to condition. And that's kind of what we've used the barrel for sometimes is like, you know, it, it's the same conversation we have with people all the time. They ask about Media Noche in particular, like, when are you guys going to do a non-barrel aged version of it? And it's, it's never because we, we design it for barrels and, yes. and for age. Yes. And I think the age component is something that we've now tried to dial in is, you know, not just knowing it's going to go into barrels, but knowing it's going to be served 12 months at minimum from, from when it is brewed. Mm-hmm. And there's some changes there that we're trying to get better about, you know, like you said, oxygen is such a big you know, factor for acid aldehyde and trying to make sure, you know, we have barrels that 
now we've gotten better, we, we almost never come across it. Where some of our older ones, like, well, it just never came, you know, with just too much oxygen, too much mm-hmm. we, too much time without the, the proper kind of either blanketing or other things to keep those barrels fresh and, and not so much oxygen coming in. But after 18 months, it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. So just trying to protect them as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been, a, I think, an ongoing kind of challenge, but also something we're getting better at. Nice. So. We, 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 for, we, for us, like, you know, we, we do, similar to you, we just brew. We use a lot of different aged barrels, if you will, like from, I've, I've had as young as two-year-old barrels, you know, all the way into, God, I think we did a 35-year-old Heaven Hill barrel one time. That was the blue label, like a Japanese whiskey. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, actually became the same batch that uh, the most recent Goose Rare was in. And I hated the barrels. There was nothing in them. It was just like adding splinters to beer. You added oak. It was it was like you just added the stereotypical oak because if you can imagine, all the beautiful parts of the oak were in the whiskey. It sat in there for so long. And then not even, not only that, um, a lot of the barrel, the inside of the barrel, after that long, was just sitting in air. You know, there wasn't actually even whiskey touching the oak anymore. You know, after evaporation, you have to think it, it's gonna be a decade where the top half of that barrel is just sitting. You know, just wood in air, you know, because of the liquid level is just, you know, so low by that time. So um, something that we found, you know, it is nice to have a blend, uh, you know, of, of younger and older, but um, older is not better um, at all, uh, I don't think. And uh, some of my favorite things we've ever done, Derivation Blend 3 was a non-adjunct stout, and it was two-year-old rye barrels from Willet. And God, when they're young like that, they don't leak. They're, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're tight. You know, they're just, and with that, you have to think there's less O2 exposure. There's less O2 ingress. You know what I mean? There's a lot more of the vanilla left in the oak. You know, a lot more of the coke, a lot more of everything you want from the oak because the bourbon hasn't stripped it yet. You know, it was such a short time. So having those pieces uh, is really good for blending. And, and, and I, I like that idea of like maybe just packaging like a top level, you know, because of, uh, I'm assuming your warehouse is ambient. You let the yeah. temperature. So does it get cold in the winter and hot in the summer? Or Yeah, Colorado's got pretty extreme. The one thing that's consistent is our humidity. So that, you know, we are always, you know, evaporating more off, especially yeah. water. But yeah, our uh, I think our barrel room, we got two barrel rooms now. One is probably ranging as high. It'll get it in the hundreds, um, probably mm-hmm. in there ambient, maybe not maybe just under 100, maybe like 90, 95. Yep. In, as cold as you know 30 25 30 so cold. yeah, yeah. Um, with with that low moisture though it, it, the swings happen throughout the day too so you, yeah. you know so the barrels stay pretty stable the, yeah. the, the temperatures in the barrel are not fluctuating quite that high it but takes a long time it does take it takes a, a long time while. to move a room full of liquid yeah that it, it does so which yeah and I, you know that's we do like that age and we've talked about you know down the road do we do some climate control to give us a little bit more you know we get to control how those age but mm-hmm. There's a, there's something I think nuanced and kind of you know there's there's something very romantic about this is the season that you know mm-hmm. b- bourbon is is experiencing all that as well you know okay this is a really really extreme summer or mm-hmm. really cold winter and they have different extractions from those barrels so I I really love that you know that sense of place and time with with that specific okay this this was a really hot summer mm-hmm. and these barrels you know. Maybe the the cost is is a, is a little bit on the mouthfeel, but the barrel character is so amazing. But cool. but we can blend you know some of that back into it too. Yeah. So it's been fun just to see how barrels age over time and yeah. change. I haven't uh, we move our barrels around too much, I think. But so I haven't really ever like gone across like a whole top row. But then they're all different recipes and all different barrels, so I wouldn't have a lot of good data, if you will, to to see if we're seeing that much variation. But our room, 
Um, our room is our, our warehouse, which we do our bottle conditioning in as well. So it never gets cooler than 65 in there just for bottle conditioning. And um, in the summer, we don't have AC in there, but it's an interior warehousing space between two others. So it never gets really above 85. Right. Um, and as you mentioned, it takes forever to warm. We have over 400 bourbon barrels filled. It would take forever to warm all those up in that room. But, uh, but you know, there is some slight, you know, up and downs um, um, over time. But, uh, and, you know, it was one of those our process was more out of just what we could do as opposed to me sitting down writing. I want my barrels to age from 65 to 85 degrees. You know what I mean? Like it's in our barrel, bottle conditioning warehouse. So that's just what they do um, um, for us. But, uh, but yeah, it seems to be working very well though. It's, it's, it's okay. <laughs> it, it, as is yours though. You know what I mean? It's fun that there's, there's no right way or wrong way to do all these things. Um, there's just different ways. And then, and then our, our, you know, your, your ability to, to pull the beer from the barrels when it's ready and blend and, and, and you know, produce a packaged you know stable beers that's that's the 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 other part of the art you know what i mean that that it's hard to give yourself credit for that but like neil neil neil's touches on that beer too you know there's we can talk about barrels and recipes all day too but neil's touches on that beer and that and that quality too yeah and i think i I think the blending of of stouts in particular obviously you know you know with mixed culture beer that's that's pretty i mean it's essential but i think it gets overlooked at how important blending is to produce a really good, I and mean, we love doing single barrel projects just because it helps. It's kind of like a time capsule. Like this is at 14 months, this is where this batch was, but it, you know, I, I can't imagine, I'm trying to think through all of our single barrel. We've done draft only probably 10 or 15 at this point, just single barrel, maybe noche, just take it out at, you know, this barrel, this, this time do an adjunct or not. And none of them have been any better than the blends we do. Mm-hmm. Obviously, smaller, you know, it's, it's harder to get, so sometimes untapped doesn't reflect <laughs> yes, that. It just re- reflects rarity more than actual flavor. Of course. But we do a bigger, you know, six to eight to maybe even nine barrel blend, and we can really, then we have so many components to work with, and we can we can get it dialed into exactly what we want. Mm-hmm. Um, we just have enough, you know, options and enough variables to be able yeah. to control that. And that's, that's a tough, I mean, I think it's the same with almost any, you know, even spirits too. Single barrels are fun because they're different. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but when you have six to 10 components that you can kind of blend with, yeah. um, I think that's, I think that I don't think a lot of people are as intentional as you are about blends, uh, with clean beer and stouts in particular. Um, so I think it's really cool that you guys do that and Thanks. also create new recipes for those blends. Yeah, it's it's a blast to write new recipes. You know, what I mean, it's just in like, well, let's see what this does. I mean, not one thing we've ever done is perfect. So everything, something somewhere could be better. You know, so it's like, let's try, let's try to find perfect, which is and there's no, you know, it's not possible, but um, it's fun. You know, like, well, let's make a little tweak, and then and then honestly, honestly as well, like you know, like when we came and did did our collab, you know, that was a batch. However. When we come back later for the final, a majority of that batch will be what we brewed. But if it needs to be blended back with something else, we can always have these pieces. You know, there's we don't have these orphan barrels because everything's an orphan in there. You right. know, so we we're never held to we're never we're, I'm never my hands never forced before I walk in there. When I, you know, I mean, I can always walk out of that barrel warehouse knowing that I blended the best thing we could do at that moment. You know what I mean? Right. Because it's not like well that batch is okay. Let's just bottle that whole batch. You know, it's like no because there there is no batch. It it is is all pieces that we can put together of a puzzle. So um, that that I think has really helped. Um, just honestly just make it fun and keep it interesting for me as well as a brewer and 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 see that whole project evolve on that side and when i have you know friends in like you and 
and anybody else when they come over and like we brew stouts it's kind of fun to go pull nails and like okay here's the same recipe but from this barrel okay and now this is the, re- the same recipe brewed you know but, but three play-doh lower you know and and it's like oh man i mean it's educational every time i go in there because i can't i honestly cannot remember everything we have in there so we have i have a massive excel spreadsheet with notes all over it but uh but you know it, without that um i would just be probably just another barrel aged stout producer you right. know what i mean which is this it would just be these batches um and and but every year i'm an old wine guy so i like the idea that every year is a new vintage and that vintage and you know it's one thing the vintage date batches it's like well you're brewing almost the same thing every year but for us it's truly a different blend um every year will be slightly different or maybe drastically different depending on what we thought was the best at the time and and as a wine guy i love that you know i don't i don't i don't need five years in a row of a wine that tastes exactly the same i just have two bottles of one of the year you know what i mean like you don't want them the same all the time so for me at least and so i love that always evolving and changing thing with with our whole thing but it it makes it labor intensive you know (laughs) when we go over to blend it takes me tommy and brian better part of a day or two now you know pull nails samples you know then run pcrs on everything and then talk about the blends and let's be honest like we're sipping on 15 percent beers it's hard like people like oh whatever you know no but we you know by lunchtime it's it's exhausting we're we're just like i I don't think i can do any more of these guys we've had like (laughs) we've had like 50 samples and my palate is wrecked and i have a buzz and like i think i need a break (laughs) you know what i mean because it's it's part of it too you know people take for granted it's like that's that's that that is part of what we're doing and um you, I, you don't get the same experience if you're spinning it out. You got to swallow the beer to taste it. So, <laughs> I think uh, you kind of touched on it too. I think something that we we have similar approaches to is that uh, there's not a date that's you know okay we're releasing this on you know it's not on the calendar a year in advance six months in advance it's pretty much when when it's ready. So how do you guys how do you guys determine okay you know obviously there's logistics that play into some of those decisions but how do you guys determine when it's a okay it's it's time to work on a blend do you guys. You know, keep kind of track of what's getting mature. You know, okay, this is getting closer, and now we have enough. Um, what's your guys' process, kind of, for for knowing when it's time to, to package something? It, it is definitely that when when things are coming to mature, maturity. Um, you know, w- once we got our newer location and really really grew our barrel program, we are just now kind of starting to see that fruition to where like we're having a majority. Sorry, not a majority, but a very large number of barrels come to maturity. So we are now at the point where any given time, and then and the the only stressful part now is is you'd hate to miss you know the window. You'd hate to have these beautiful beers and then not get to it for three or four months. And be like, oh man, that was a little bit better, you know, just a couple months ago. And that's something too people need to learn. It's not there. You don't. There's not an indefinite to this. Forty months will not taste better than thirty months, or me, it may, it may not. You know what I mean? It's there. There is a timeline for these things, and there are peaks. So um, that's something that. We, we try to, to, to watch. Um, we've got a pretty good grasp on, you know, everything of ours. We like we like to have, like, a minimum of 18 months in oak um, just over, you know, with our experience over the years. That's something that I found that I like with our, our recipes, our barrels, our processes. Um, those beers hit my palate better that way. So um, we just did, like, an 18-month to a 28-month blend um, on the last one, and um, it tastes, you know, really nice. And so, so that's something we're watching. You know, when I can look at my spreadsheet, and they're, it's – by date and I can see barrels that we've already emptied and I leave the ones we haven't and and see the pieces and, and you know how old they are and oh that piece we used for derivation 11 so I already have a, a, an idea what the rest of the barrels are probably going to taste like depending you know where they probably are before I even go over to the warehouse and then when I go to the warehouse 
kind of have like a list of what I'm hunting for because right. um, they get moved around unfortunately so much that they're not in order um, so it's a lot of digging but but that's that's mainly our process um another thing too is is you know we just did a derivation release um, last weekend and we sold the whole batch out on site you know, just on site consumption and so now that it's gone it's like well I guess I maybe want to start working on another one. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, it's a long process for us. Even if I were sure. to start on it now, we won't see it for probably three months or so just because of, you know, as we mentioned, you know, blending, um, that, that time commitment, then running PCRs on everything. We run a PCR on every barrel, and then we run a PCR on the blend, and then we run a PCR on the bottles, and then we do incubation um, to maintain, you know, our quality um, and, and just making sure that if you're buying a 50 or $60 bottle of stout from us, there's no worries. Um, so that takes a while, you know what I mean? And it makes me way more comfortable with our releases too now. So, um, yeah, that's something we'll actually probably start looking at now. Like I have mature barrels and I need to start thinking, honestly, um, beer barrel time is one that we do release every Thanksgiving. And fortunately, since it's a blend and not, a, you know, it's, it, we, the, there is no set brew day for the batches and we just brew throughout the year and then come back and blend. So we know, um, I'll probably pick barrels for beer barrel time here soon. Um, earmark those and then around outside of that blend pick barrels for like maybe a new derivation or something like that or a new shared barrel aged out um so that's kind of how we worked into it um and you know it's whatever production allows us to do too you know if we have um our we have one jacketed bright tank that's large enough for our batches and we have one non-jacketed bright tank and that's for our funky stuff so if the non-jacketed one isn't being used for an ipa or or a shared beer for you know a week or two we can hey let's go get this stout ready you know get the barrels pulled over out of the warehouse let's get it racked you know let's run get everything run on it so you know production kind of helps us too a little bit and that's one of the nice things we just don't have only beer barrel time tells us when it has to come out and so we just start way early on it that's awesome and for you so you like you said you don't have you don't have a media noche day or something like that it's just kind of whatever you think you need to do yeah i think we've we jumped around the whole calendar the only time we've uh, been consistent year to year is gabf so similar to to, uh, i think beer beer barrel time to where now we've got it's you know it's going to be a blend and it's a we always have something that's mature enough but we're also you know at this point I, i think you know we have enough stock that that would happen but if there wasn't beer that was ready, we would just push it off. It's you know, I think it's a it's a different approach. It's more like what you guys are saying is that, um, that you're not constrained by okay, we gotta have this beer out on this date. Uh, obviously, for the crowds coming for GABF, that'd be ideal. It's just mm-hmm. a great time for us to do a release. Um, but if we just you know taste through what we think is mature enough and it's just not quite there or um, just not what we want, we'll we'll do a different release. And we kind of have done you know same approach. Okay, we start tasting them, we start keeping track on them. They're getting closer and closer to maturity, and and it's time to to start coming up with the blend and, and then working on whether we adjunct it or not. And so that's for us, I think, is getting you know we, we had that same target eighteen months is kind of in the back of our mind, um, and that was really an evolution from the twelve and just tasting it. And it was kind of this idea that as long as we keep tasting it and it keeps improving, we'll move the target forward. So our initial goal was twelve months, and that first you know filling seven or eight barrels the very first you know month we're open. You're just you're tasting them way too often, and you're way too anxious. Um, but once you get more inventory, and you've got some stuff. You can just kind of you know, 12 months we don't even taste them, we don't even pull nails, so we don't even have a nail in them until probably 12 months. And I think we need to be more cognizant of the fact that maybe 18 months is, like you said, maybe it's it could be shorter or longer, and not necessarily having that target because we move that target based on we could just kept seeing more and more. You know, the, the flavor was better. The extractions were amazing. We were getting really complex barrel character out of those that went past that 12-month mark. And I think we need to just be more cognizant of everything is, is up for debate. There's no, there's, no, there's no rules right now for us. And that's, I think, what when that's we awesome. do our best work is when 
you know, we go in with kind of a, a blank slate each time and, and what what are the, the, the best barrels? That's kind of the first approach we take is what, what are the best, most, you know, you know if, if we're ready to do a blend, we got, let's say we have 20 barrels that are all getting closer to maturity. What are the best ones out of this group that would fit a blend? And then, and then let the adjuncts deter, be determined based on those flavor profiles. You know, we're not going to go in a whole different direction than where, you know, we're not going to try and match it exactly. But what adjuncts would, would complement that well? And we don't make those decisions until after we even determine mm-hmm. what's mature. And I think that's I think it's a unique approach that you guys also have. Um, that intentionality piece is so important. And I think you can only do that when you don't have constraints of okay, we got to have this many bottles ready on this date, yep. and they have to be this adjunct, yep. you know, this variant. You know, we do coconut medio noche fairly often. We've done I think two batches now packaged, and we've done some different vanilla ones. Um, but it's not like an annual, okay, ready for coconut. Like these barrels didn't have a lot of coconut expression. So why would we yep. push it in a direction? It's not willing to go. Yep. So that's, that's, I think for us, what, that's what excites me is just every time we go into the barrel room and pull nails and taste through stuff, it's like, it's all, you know, all, everything's on the table, whatever you guys want to, wherever we want to go with this, everything is up for, you know, we can, we can go longer, we can go 15 months and it's, it's great. And then let's just do it. So mm-hmm. Um, just I think taking those rules out of the equation helps I think be a bit more intentional so I guess we should segue into adjuncts I'm yeah. sure people are going to talk about adjuncts <laughs> yeah. or hear us talk about adjuncts how much time know. do we have James? Uh, let's see here we got 20 more minutes okay 10 more minutes 10 more minutes no, something like that yeah so um uh yeah uh the world has been flipped upside down on adjuncts uh, all of a sudden. I, <laughs> I, think thought, we're, I think we're on the opposite ends of the table, literally <laughs> sometimes. But, yeah. yeah, I think so. But uh, but uh, it, it's fun. You know, um, uh, one of my favorite early barrel-aged stouts ever was uh, the, the original Goose Island, the, the coffee Bourbon County stout. And um, to think that, you know, a coffee stout, you know, that's not pastry stout or even really even considered an adjunct and so that's where my mind always started with 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 um our stuff was you know like coffee and then um um it came into um when i worked at perennial um abraxas was one of my recipes and that was mexican chocolate um inspired so i always i've always had like for adjuncts more of like a a baker's approach if you will um uh, you know you know, a chef can just sprinkle salt, but a baker has to be very legitimate with all their additions, you know, in order to get bread and dough to rise and do, you know, there's a lot more like very precision to it. And, and, and now we have like people coming in and like, I love your pastry stuff. It's like, I don't make pastry stuff. Stop it. I don't make pastry stuff. <laughs> we brand nothing. ours pastry stuff. I know. So. I know. So this is, this is good. So, um, um, with adjuncts, I mean, what, what are, what are, what, what are, I, what are you trying to do? You know, what, 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 what is, are, are you just trying to create something new, something, you know, delicious? Are you taking components from the barrel and trying to exhibit those? Are you trying to enhance those? Are you trying to play off of those? Um, are people just saying, I want uh, a peanut butter and jelly stout? And you're just like, let's do it. You know what I mean? Like, what, what? And I don't even know if you, I just threw that out there. We have made a peanut butter and oh, jelly okay, stout. Okay, have you? So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, could, you could probably throw out something ridiculous, and we've probably tried it. So. Uh, no, <laughs> but. And, and no, so. So, so what, what, what is, what, what is, what is, I guess, adjunct sure. to you or, or even, or even your processes behind it, you know, right. um, um, I'm sure a lot of people, that's one of the questions I get is, you know, how do you do coconut? Right. You know, um, how do you do, how do you do your adjuncts? So I guess, Neil, what, what, whatever you would like to share, <laughs> yeah. you may not want to share all of it, but what would you like to share about adjuncts? So we have, I think we have two different approaches. I think the, like you said, the more of the baker's approach of, uh, you know, being really, I think meticulous and a little bit to be honest, more restrained 
that's what that's the approach we take with medianoche so the the variants we do of of adjuncted medianoche are really more on the they're adjuncted stouts they're not pastry stouts and we don't brand them that way we'll, we'll occasionally do like a small batch for anniversary we did a birthday cake just for fun you know yep. but but we don't ever package those the the ones you know and, and we we want to make sure that that if we're going to do a big big release or even something that we're going to share it somewhere else we want to make sure that those are um, I think complimentary. So the, the adjuncts are, are really based on, on the expression the barrels have. Um, obviously, coconut and vanilla are probably the two we use the most, but we're always looking to, you know, chocolate, coffee, spice, you know, cinnamon. or um, yeah. Cacao is something that we, we don't use as much anymore because our, our barrels seem to get a little bit more roasty. Um, some of the – our stouts are way less roasty now. We've, we've dialed back some of the roast character almost to get closer to a porter. Than, than true, you know, stout, and and that's why we've kind of backed away from cacao. But we've also now got a, a, a different tweak to the recipe that would allow more chocolate expressions, and so that's that's our approach with medianoche. Um, and then we just source as needed for you know vanilla is the hardest. I mean, yeah, like all of yeah. us know, it's the price is is astronomical, and we charge you know more for it accordingly. Mm-hmm. The market seems to bear a little bit more on vanilla, but not quite what. You know the difference in cost for vanilla to coconut is just it's mm-hmm. that's why you know a five pound per gallon of coconut is is manageable but a, you know a pound per barrel of vanilla is it's probably about what most of us are doing but it costs significantly more mm-hmm. and so that's you know that some of those logistics are, are playing a factor a lot of what we can buy from nuts.com that's always uh, yep. what, just peruse the nuts.com website what can we get in bulk and what's the yeah. price there Sometimes it's a budget, you know, that will literally go and like, okay, we can spend $3,000 on adjuncts on this batch mm-hmm. and still get to a reasonable price point. We try not to make that the concern, but there's some realities to, you know, if we're going to charge a certain base price for this bottle, we, we, for us, you know, we can't go to a certain, ex, you know, extreme on the price end and still, you know, have customers seeking that bottle out. So we're always cognizant of that, but we don't want to diminish what the beer could be. That's, yeah. that's the other reality is if it needs, you know, Five thousand dollars worth of vanilla, yeah. then we'll, we'll go in that direction. But we don't want to do it just for the sake of extremes. We do plenty of that on the clean, on the non-barrel aged side. Okay, like we'll, cool. we'll do some extreme fun projects, and most of those are just driven by a sense of, of, of fun, really, and yep. nostalgia. I think we, we really want to do things that you know harken back to childhood. You know, we did the PB and J. We've done PB and J kettle sour now, a Berliner, and that was just a couple extra pouring that this uh, today. And it's such a unique beer because the stout. Uh, obviously, there's that just inherent chocolate character to it, mm-hmm. which is fun, but sometimes gets in the way of like a you know you want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Mm-hmm. It's kind of this idea. So those are that's what inspires those. And we do you know, admittedly, we have fun with it, and and we've been called gimmicky at times, which is not completely inaccurate. But we do it with an intentionality I think that is unique and that most people don't understand. Yeah. Um, even something like spaghetti goza that we did at GABF that was kind of you know it was a fun. We wanted a beer that people would talk about whether yeah. they hate it or just enjoyed it. <laughs> Um, but we wanted to do it well, and so we, you know, we figured ways that we could incorporate local, you know, produce and work with local farms to get fresh oregano, fresh basil, fire roasted tomatoes, and make this. Uh, and really, you know, those beers are inspired by not just like, hey, we're just trying to, trying to, kind of <laughs> poke the bear, but we really, you know, that was truly inspired by a, a GABF beer that I judged uh, my first year judging. It was just, uh, I don't even know who it was. Obviously, it was blind just a fantastic tomato goes on this idea of like a savory character yeah so they're born out of something that's more than just like hey this would be a great marketing beer um obviously we lean into those sides all the time because they're fun to market and and some people just i think get a little bit too caught up in i mean i think what we do is really 
Um, I think it's really well executed, and I think that's what is surprising sometimes when we have something out, outlandish like mm-hmm. a, a peanut butter and jelly, you know, Berliner. Um, it, a lot of dim- dismissive, like, eh, this is no way it works. But you know, peanut flour worked surprisingly well. I think I was even, you know, a little bit yeah. s- uh, skeptical that it would we pulled off. So that's kind of the approach. We we don't want to we don't want to diminish the uh, I think the quality of what we're producing, and mm-hmm. that's that's always the line we toe is we don't want to just go so outlandish that people can't take us seriously and i we we'll get that sometimes but i think we do it in such an intentional way and and tip and typically pretty well well executed um on this the barrel age side it's a little bit less of that there's not you know we're not going to do a lot of pastry made in oche it just yeah. doesn't seem to fit because then those get distracting from you know a four percent kettle sour the base beer is not you know, there's there's some really good ones that are just the base, you know, Berliners and Gozas that we've seen in, in the last, you know, decade in the U.S. and now are, are awesome. There's some really great ones, but ours is, is designed for some fun. You know, we don't just, we've I don't think we've ever just released just our straight Berliner. Um, we always do something with uh, fruit or with some adjuncts now. We do, we now call it a pastry sour. Um, we have a pastry sour series that's, you know, raspberry cobbler we're pouring today as well. It's kind of inspired by, you know, a, a, a bit more of a dessert take on a, on a approachable sour. Yeah. So that's our approach to that. Yeah. For you, yeah, I know you guys are, you know, like I said, we're on opposite ends of the table, but it sounds like similar on the barrel aged side. So um, when you guys approach adjuncts, is there uh, an idea that you have in mind or, or is it kind of the barrels or are you complimenting? Are you trying to do some con- contrasting blends? Yeah. Um, it, it, it is. It ends up being more so whenever we go over and, and, and pull barrels and do blends, you know, finding, man, the barrels that are mature right now are just, you know, exhibiting tons of coconut or just tons of chocolate or, you know, vanilla or coffee even. They kind of speak to us more more often than not. Um, we approach adjuncts, you know, I take such approach to make, you know, to be as all natural as possible with all of our beers. You know, I, I think I think there's nothing that we don't do that's just, you know, as natural as possible. Um, so with our adjuncts, you know, we only use real tangible ingredients you know coffee like hence the reason we we have very limited adjuncts we've actually used in 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 stout you know it's it's coffee vanilla um cinnamon cocoa nibs um coconut flake uh i think that's maybe it orange peel um in one of our stouts like that's it you know so um you know you won't find us doing a lot of um you know uh Graham, you know, graham crackers. I guess you could still buy the graham cracker, but the graham cracker itself is made of other things. You know what I mean? So, so maybe use those actual ingredients. But so we've always taken, especially for derivation, I've always taken a very baker's approach to making sure that the integrate the integration of the ingredients, the the harmony of them, that they are put in at certain uh, uh, percentage rates to complement each other. You know, it's not like, well, I put three ingredients in the same amount, just cook whatever. You know, like we've you know, thought about these things and played with them over time and, and understood their impact and, and how aggressive they are. And, and vanilla and coconut make a beer taste sweeter and cinnamon and coffee make it taste drier, you know, and, and, and things that you can play around with as far as, you know, even mouthfeel at that level. You know, the beer's already done and you can still you know, either pull mouthfeel up or sweetness down with just the adjuncts that we're using. So um, we, we've with derivation, and we've always been very, very... And once again, this one of the reasons it takes so long to make these things and you know we have to think our way through every last bit of the process and then with being all natural ingredients it's infection points you know what i mean which is always just terrifying you know we have a beer that's been in barrel for 28 months and let's throw raw coconut in it that we know is infected you know what i mean so trying to get you know these adjuncts um clean into the beer cleanly um 
making sure the beer stays clean the entire way too. Now with Shared, so our other brand that I co-own with our other two brewers, um, it, that's a whole other story we could talk about. But but with Shared, you know, making barrel-aged stouts, we have a lot of stainless that sits empty because we don't need to be brewing, you know, or barrel-aged beers. We don't need to be brewing oak-aged beer every day, you know, refilling oak all the time because these beers need time to mature. So um, with Shared, we use our stainless to make IPAs. IPAs are amazing yeast starters for our stouts. I mean, that's one of the reasons we started making IPA was the two brewers, Brian and Tommy love IPA and wanted to make them, but at the same time, I needed the yeast for side project stouts, you know, which um, it takes a lot of yeast to make these monsters. Um, so um, with that, though, with Shared, we've done a couple of non-barrel-aged stouts and um, unintentionally, maybe tiptoed in the pastry realm. Um, we, we, we did a coconut uh, stout called Coconut Vibes. Coconut, to me, I thought was an ingredient kind of like vanilla. It, I just don't know if you could ever put too much in. Well, you can definitely put too much coconut in a beer, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, the consumer's opinion was they loved it. I, I thought it was a little heavy-handed. Um, and unfortunately for us, like we didn't have more stout in tank in process to back blend. Um, but everybody that tasted it loved it, and so we went with it. And it, and it turned out we brought it today, and it is it is definitely tiptoeing in the pastry land. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we did a barrel aged version of that, and actually used less coconut in the barrel aged version to let the barrel still come through. But we thought we got a great coconut profile still out of the beer. I preferred the barrel aged version, but then we ended up having people go, you know, well, I don't get the barrel because the coconut's so great. It's like, well, you, you kind of you can't have both. You know right. what I mean? And so that's something we've been playing with a shared, maybe kind of seeing the extremities, uh, seeing how extreme you can get, um, maybe before you fall off the edge. Um, it's not something we we want to really do. It's just we kind of fell our way into it with coconut vibes. Um, but but yeah, for derivation, it's always very very thought out. All of our adjuncts um, are are for are purposeful, if you will, and and and, and natural and and. We add, I guess, if people want to know about process, like we add our adjuncts as late in the process as possible, you know, so we're talking, you know, finished beer in like a bright tank, or we actually, I bought a Grundy and had it retrofitted to be like a recirculation tank. Um, That's amazing. It's like 300 gallons, so it can fit um, about 300 pounds of coconut. So um, per, per usage. So, you know, we can, we can whip the beer through the coconut pump it back into the tank, open up this tank, pump it back in the bright tank, open up our Grundy, dig all the coconut out, put fresh coconut back in, purge, do it again. So when whip the beer through the coconut. So, so we used to be held by whatever ingredients we put in the bright tank once it's sealed up and closed. If you didn't add enough, you can't really add more. You know what I mean? The beer the tank's got beer in it. So we, we've come into some processes of like how to be able to add it externally from the tank. So we're actually recirculating through it to, you know, to, to get a full extraction in, in our extraction. But we have found that the later you add the, the ingredients, um, the more vibrant and fresh they are. They don't age well. Um, and, and I think maybe that is part of even adding it later. If we would have maybe added hot cider pre or in barrel and let it sit for a year or two years in barrel, you maybe have it so integrated that it might stay longer in bottle. But but then it's not as fresh and vibrant and, and maybe you could do both, but that's tough, you know? So I, I like, we package beer when it's ready to drink, but I get it. People are going to age it and that's fine, but it's on them as well. Sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's something we found is with processes, the later you add it, the more vibrant and fresh it is. And, and if I'm going to put, you know, $10,000 of vanilla beans in something, I want it to be vibrant and fresh and right yeah. now. So, um, that's been our process. But with that, I think we've talked about style enough. I think I think we're out of time. I, I think, think we got to go pour some. Beer. I think we got to go this festival actually <laughs> yeah. more than anything. So Corey, it's great to chat with you and take over the podcast. With yeah, you. this is great. Jamie <laughs> just sat here and watched us the whole time. I know. It's kind of creeped out a little bit, but no, no, no I'm joking. <laughs> we'll <laughs> put Neil, him on the hot seat next. Absolutely, uh, Neil. Good talking to you. I'm you glad too, we Corey. could talk some things. 
that's going to bring to close this special 100th episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. Neil, thanks to you and Corey for sharing that podcast takeover and a fantastic con- uh, conversation about brewing barrel-aged beers. Thanks for letting us take over and share it with, uh, with the entire subscribership group for number 100. You know, if you uh, play your cards right, maybe the numbers on this one are going to give you uh, your competitive spot <laughs> in the top after five. The top ten. So. All right, all right. Um, GND Chillers sets the standard on quality, service, and dedication. Tavor makes it possible to discover highly rated beer from all over the world. Hopsteiner delivers the finest hops and hops products available. And Clarion Lubricants is the expert at food grade lubricants. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Like I said before, if you enjoy what we do on the podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on that subscribe button. We'll send you six issues a year, including articles from folks like Neil right here. Uh, and we've got you on record now saying you're going to write another one. I am. And I've got the pick six in the most recent. One. And you so, do have a pick six yeah, in the, so uh, the gotta, stout issue number 35. subscribe to find out who I picked. If you subscribe now, we will send you that issue as a matter of fact. Find out what are my six. What will be my pick six? We'll be back next week with a brand new episode 101. And my guest on that podcast is John Laffler of Off Color Brewing. Until next week, uh, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.